My name is Rob Katz. I'm the CEO of Val Resorts, and I want to welcome you to Epic by Nature. Around the world, across all of our resorts, we have employees who are experiencing their own epic journeys. Employees who are the heroes of their own stories, who constantly challenge themselves to give more, to do more, to be more. We developed this podcast so that we can share their journeys and the journeys of our guests, our mountains, and our communities, all of which are truly epic by nature. We have to be ambitious and we have to be accountable to one another as a team. We're together in this as a community, as a mountain, as a resort network, and it just makes me feel part of something bigger. I want to win, but more than that, way more than that. I want my team to win. We have always been very innovative, and I think that is why we are leaders. I found that there was a much greater value in we than in me. Our last podcast came out this past May and highlighted what transpired as we closed our resorts in March and tried to navigate through the COVID crisis. Much has happened since then, and no doubt, we will be releasing a podcast with all the learnings and reflections our leaders have taken away from this unique time in our company's history and unique time around the globe. But COVID was not the only thing that happened in these past eight months. We have also experienced a renewed awakening to the long-term and systemic racism that unfortunately still remains so prevalent in our world. And in the bubble that our company and our sport live in, we have also been made more acutely aware of how lacking in racial diversity our industry is. Back in June, I sent an email to all of you saying that we were part of the problem. Since that time, we've had a number of conversations about what terms like diversity, inclusion, and equity mean. We have heard more about the history of racial challenges in the world and in skiing and riding in particular and talked about how the language we casually use can itself be very much a part of the problem. We talked about how diversity and racial justice have to be a larger part of how we engage in the broader community and the political realm. And we have incorporated those discussions as a part of what our teams talk about on a regular basis. We have also launched a new value for our company, Be Inclusive to make it clear that diversity, equity, and inclusion are a core part of what being at Vail Resorts should be about, and that DEI is a key part of our leadership culture. Despite all of that, I'm constantly reminded that we are only at the very beginning of this journey, that I am personally only at the very beginning of this journey. I understand the urge to sit through one or two sessions on diversity and decide that we have now learned this topic and are ready to change everything by next season. But that's not how this works. Hundreds, if not thousands of years of racial bias does not get undone by listening to a couple of talks, discussions, or podcasts. And while I've been so impressed with the engagement by so many across our company and by the inquisitiveness and vulnerability so many of you have shown, I get emails and see comments on a daily basis filled with implicit and explicit racial stereotypes that remind me of how much work still lies ahead. But that's actually the good news because I am now more aware of those challenging comments and listen to them more intensely than just a year ago. And right now, that is one of the most important things we can do. Listen. Listen to people who agree with us and don't agree with us. Listen to people who have struggled under the oppression of racism. People who have worked a lifetime trying to address racism and people who have sometimes failed to show up the right way when confronting racism. And you can hear all of that right here in our own industry and in our own company. For this podcast, we wanted to get a chance to listen to people of color working in different parts of our company with different jobs and different journeys. There is always a risk of tokenism in doing a podcast like this. 
that by highlighting the stories of a handful of people of color in our company, we are absolving ourselves of our past or current wrongs, or suggesting that because these people have succeeded in our company, it suggests that anyone of color could succeed, or asking these folks to bear the burden of this journey for us. This is all true. However, I want to make two points about this challenge. First, we are highlighting these stories to showcase the amazing bravery and skills of some of our folks, while at the same time showcasing our failures as a company and what hopefully can create a clarion call for all of us to do better. Because there are enough barriers to joining our industry or joining our company. The fact that the color of your skin is another challenge should be an outrage to all of us. And second, in a company with relatively few people of color, we do need to find ways to hear their voices while also respecting some people's personal choice for privacy and others' personal choice to speak out. And it is in that vein that this podcast is offered, a chance for all of us to listen and a chance for people to speak and be heard. Annette Diggs is an African-American microbiologist and ski instructor based at Stevens Pass, who is passionate about expanding access to our sport. She knows firsthand that opportunities and exposure when you are young can shape your dreams and path for the future. One of the defining parts in my life is that I was going to an all-Black school and um, we didn't have many resources. And at the time, I didn't know that. I just knew that, you know, uh, one summer uh, my mom said that I wasn't going to that school anymore. Instead, I was being bused from one side of town to another to attend a predominantly white school district with a lot more resources. And um, I remember like my first day of school, um, I walked into the classroom and I seen musical instruments for the first time in my life. And it absolutely blew my mind away, right? Because we didn't have this at my other school. We didn't even have books. We didn't have those resources in my community. And if you if you know anything about our history and, and redline communities, um, that's what goes on in redline communities because education is funded by uh, property taxes. For those who may not have the context, I want to take a second to define redlining. Redlining is a term that refers to discriminatory lending and investment practices that prevented home ownership among African-Americans and other people of color. Redlined areas were physically marked with red shading on a map. Neighborhoods that were redlined were deemed unfit for development, which meant that small businesses were unable to grow, employment opportunities were impacted, and access to banking, healthcare, and groceries constrained also limiting funding for local public schools. Put simply, these neighborhoods were unable to thrive because of policies that intended it to be that way and are a good example of how a policy can be presented to the public as having nothing to do with race, despite an intent that has incredibly racist outcomes. So here I am going to the school with all these resources and it gave me a better access to education and it provided me like this higher level of literacy and also like paved the way to where I'm at today. And so, you know, being a kid coming from a disadvantaged background, like all this was new to me. And every time we would return back to break, the teacher would say, hey, does anybody want to share what they did over the spring break or any type of holiday? And these kids would just raise their hands talking about all these epic adventures they went on and how they went hiking in the Red Rocks or they went to Mammoth to go ski and you know how they visited the Yellowstone National Park or Glacier National Park and and as as a kid from an impoverished background I've never heard of those places and it kind of like sparked my interest and it ignited a fire in me to discover those places I was like obsessed with it. And at the time, my mom, she was going to school. She was working nights into the morning. And at times my mom, she didn't have a babysitter. So we would have to go to class with her. 
and afterwards we'd have to go to the library while she did her work. And my brother and I, we would go straight for the periodical section and I would gravitate towards the outdoors magazines and the adventure magazines. And I just remember like seeing like people hiking in foreign places, skiing down faces of mountains, like, you know, helicopters landing on mountains, you know, people holding onto rock by, you know, the tips of their finger. It was just like so epic. And, and I wanted that, but you know, as I attended this school and as time passed, I noticed like this common thread, no matter how hard I looked and no matter who was telling the story, it was coming from within the white community. But that didn't stop Annette and her brother from creating their own outdoor recreation in Las Vegas, where they lived. They rock climbed buildings and made landscapes out of urbanscapes before eventually moving from Las Vegas to the South. Memphis, Tennessee. During that time, you know, my brother and I had stopped recreating as much outdoors because we had experienced racism in these spaces. The South is amazing, but you do have people that are very implicit with their racism. And so a way to protect ourselves from intolerance, we stayed indoors. I remember oftentimes I would just look outside and just kind of reminisce of just venturing and recreating. But I was afraid, you know, I was afraid that if I went out into that trail, you know, hiking, that I would be shot and killed by someone who's hunting deer, intentionally shot and killed, and then written off like, oh, Oh, I just, I thought it was a deer, you know? So you can imagine like being in the South in a state, Tennessee, that's bordered by Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, these areas that are very deep and very conservative in their thoughts, right? There was like this one time I was recreating, maybe the last time I had recreated in, in the South, I was at a lake with some friends and I, and I heard with an earshot who invited the N-word, you know? It's horrible. It's a very, you know, an experience that gives you pause. It's, it's hurtful and it's anxiety causing. And at that point, I was, that was just it for me. And I just didn't want to put myself in a situation where I'm gone because of somebody's racial intolerance. For Annette, it was only when she graduated and moved from the South to Seattle that she had the opportunity to reestablish a passion for the outdoors. While at work, you know, I get invited out by a colleague to go hike. And that's when I fell in love with the outdoors again. And, um, and, and recreating out in Seattle is a whole lot different than recreating out in the, in the South. It's a different experience. Like here, it's a little bit more inclusive in mountain spaces. You're not hearing as much harmful language. You know, I could just feel the anxiety and about my safety just diminishing, you know, and, and I still get a little, you know, anxiety stricken when I go into spaces. But for the most part, you know, I'm able to recreate and become the adventure that I always wanted to be when I was a kid. My journey to snow sports um, began on a mountaineering trip in Washington State. While my team and I was like climbing Mount Adams on our way back down, some ski mountaineers like passed us. And um, as soon as they zoomed past me, it was like at that point, I knew I went to ski because, you know, just climbing down takes about three or four hours, but these guys made it down in like 45 minutes. That's when like the envy hit. And I knew that, you know, that's that winter that I wanted to learn skiing. Meanwhile, further north, over the US border in Ontario, Canada, Court Larrabee was surrounded by the outdoors as he grew up. Court Larrabee. That's my traditional name. In my First Nation culture, my name is Siganok, which means blackbird. It was a name given to me by my grandparents when I became a young man, and it has been a great responsibility to uphold and keep my traditional name and serve it well for all those that have had the name before me. Court is the Indigenous Relations Specialist at Whistler Blackcomb. He was a snowboard instructor and supervisor before that. My role at Vail Resorts is pretty complex. I handle a lot of the local First Nations recreation opportunities, land negotiations, developing an inclusive environment at Whistler Blackcomb and doing cultural competency training to train our local employees about the local First Nations and the culture that surrounds them. Court comes from Thunder Bay, Ontario, and has been based in Whistler for the last 15 years. 
So in Canada, we have three distinct Indigenous cultures. We have the Métis people, we have the Inuit, and then we have First Nations. And then amongst all of those, we have um, dozens of different diverse types of nations and tribes mixed in. And I am from what's called the Lac de Malac First Nation, or Lake of a Thousand Lakes, if you will. Um, our land territory stretches from the west of Lake Superior all the way across the Minnesota and Ontario borders for the far western point. So that that's where I call home. Our people are called Anishinaabes. In the textbooks, you'll probably recognize us as Ojibwe's, but we've been mislabeled and misrepresented <laughs> quite a few times in, in textbooks. But we're here today to say that we are called Anishinaabe. Court's family have faced many challenges going back several generations. So growing up as a First Nations youth in Canada and in, this, in the States is, was quite complex. My grandparents were a part of what's called the residential school system. So at the age of four and five, my grandmother and grandfather were taken away um, by government mandate to live and to grow at these residential school systems where they were beaten, where they were forced upon, they were basically starving them, sexual abuse, murder. It's it's a really, really dark history. And then subsequently, my parents as well, um, they were both a part of the Indian day school programs where they, again, were trying, the government was trying to rid them of their Indian ways and to civilize the savage, as many as many leaders were quoted back in the day as saving. We have two tiers of really intensive genocide that were pushed upon my family. And then myself, when at the age of three, was a part of another government mandate called the 60s Scoop. The term 60s Scoop was coined by Patrick Johnson, author of the 1983 report, Native Children and the Child Welfare System. It refers to the mass removal or scooping up of First Nations children from their families into the child welfare system, in most cases, without the consent of their families. Despite the reference to the 1960s, the 60s scoop began in the late 1950s and continued all the way into the 1980s. So as a young kid, I was taken away from my family and moved 100 kilometers minimum away into Christian mandated home. I was lucky enough to, to go with two of my siblings as well. So I had two sisters with me but we were put into these Christian homes, forced to go to church a minimum of three times a week to try to civilize us as much as possible. I don't know how well it worked. <laughs> it is hard to truly comprehend the terrible treatment of indigenous people in the US, Canada, Australia, and in many other places around the world, let alone that some of these practices were still going on only a few decades ago. Amazingly, and despite this, Court is resilient, and he acknowledges that because of the challenges he overcame as he grew, he is uniquely placed to mentor future generations. Growing up, I had a really unique opportunity to basically walk in both worlds. We still had connections to my original family. We still stayed in touch with my mother and a lot of my biological family. But then I also had this really unique perspective where I got to see both sides of the coin. I got to walk in the world with the other colonial settlers and see how they viewed the world. And then on the flip side, I was able to really understand my original family as well, which when I was young, I didn't really see much as a bonus or a benefit. It was really being lost, not being really accepted by either party. But now, in growing my own resilience and my own knowledge of myself, I'm able to use that knowledge of walking in both worlds to help communities, to help companies, and to help people understand both sides of the coin and bond these communities together. So I now see that curse flip over to a blessing. Court got his own start in our sport through school programs. So in skiing in particular, um, there, was, there would have been no chance at all for me to 
try skiing, just try snowboarding, even to go into ski jumping. Um, if it wasn't for the school programs that they had in Thunder Bay, they basically had a, you show up, we'll get you rentals. We'll, you show up, we'll give you a lift pass. And then we got to do that three times a year. And that little bit of introduction in my early days that my family would never have been able to afford gave me that opportunity to fall in love with the sport at the early age. I grew up a in a place that is almost 98% white, but not only that, I participated in a sport that's probably 99% white. <laughs> so this this really obvious need for inclusion was very apparent, apparent from the start. One beautiful thing that I found out immediately, especially about the ski industry, is that even though I had this really obvious look in this minority um, image, as soon as I put my goggles on, I put up my gaiter, put my gloves on, I was literally like everybody else. And that was the first time in my life where I felt that I didn't have to survive and I can turn that into thriving. And that mentality is what I took from the small town in Ontario, Thunder Bay, and I moved out to Whistler and I turned that surviving immediately into thriving. And I've never looked back since. Once in Whistler, Court began to reach out to community groups. When I got here, I probably had the saddest pile of gear that I thought was okay for the mountain, which I soon soon realized that was not adequate enough for the, the size of the mountain that I saw in front of me. So I actually reached out to a local group. I, I, had met one other First Nations woman and she worked for this great snowboarding program called the First Nations Snowboard Team. And I was like, please, like, how do I get involved? Not only for my own selfish needs because I needed some extra gear, but I also um, had this need to give back to these programs that were very similar to the ones that I began with. So I started off as a volunteer snowboard coach with them. Over the next couple of years, I started running the program for them here. And then I ran the provincial operations for them. And then now for the last six years, I've been the, the executive director of that program. And we help hundreds and hundreds of First Nations youth every single year access skiing and snowboarding at zero cost. All they have to do is do well in school, don't drink, don't do drugs, and then stay within good community standing once they're on the team. So. That has really been my vision and my purpose um, for my own social change in my world. Like Court, Annette also had a similar experience that led her to try and change things. I went for ski lessons and I noticed how snowy the resort was in like every way, both literally and figuratively. It was a very predominantly white space, and um, I didn't see anyone else that you know looked like looked like me. I didn't see any black women. I didn't see any black men that day on the hill. When I was like going to get my lessons, I clearly remember my presence being questioned while learning, like the stares that I would get because, oh look, you know, look, there's a black skier, and then just to hear harmful language like coupled with that. One, one harmful terminology that's used to identify blackness on a hill is I may hear within earshot somebody saying, hey, look, a unicorn. And I'm looking around and all I, you know, I don't see a unicorn and I don't see anything different. The only thing different is me. So, so that's just a, a term to identify my blackness. Another terms that I've encountered while being on the mountain would be like Dora the Explorer or cool runnings when I'm with a couple of my friends who happen to be black or from another, you know, marginalized community. They're not nice and they're they're built to make people feel uncomfortable and also built to push you out of that platform. And what I mean to push you out of the platform, push you out of that environment, which is skiing or snowboarding. At that point, like the whole reason why I learned how to ski shifted because I knew I needed to, dis to disrupt and dismantle that narrative that I was seeing. You know, I needed to I needed to use my my presence, my body, my capability, my athleticism to change the narrative. I knew 
I needed to become a ski instructor to do that. You know what that does? It helps attract other people of color and then also retain them in snow sports. You know, oftentimes when like Black, Indigenous, people of color go into these spaces, they don't see their self reflected in that environment. They can't identify with the culture and they have feelings of isolation. So I wanted to, to change that narrative by, that, by inserting myself into that role. Court has also learned how to guide the youth he trains through moments where they are made to feel unwelcome. Even in the most open and accepting places, we always seem to experience racism on some level. For instance, uh, it's happened multiple times in ski lifts uh, when we've been riding with our First Nations youth. We'll be sitting there in the lift lines and then all of a sudden you start hearing this, oh, whoa, 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 and these people doing these really old, not even real Indian calls they've heard off a John Wayne movie or some some sort. In those instances, we tell the youth to be calm, to talk to us about it if we don't hear about it. And then our leaders themselves are all trained in basically conflict resolution. And we try to educate people by simply telling them, pulling them off to the side and saying, listen, this, what you are just doing is not only historically incorrect, but awfully hurting to these young First Nations riders, and it's just rude. <laughs> Martin Drayton, a seasoned snowboard instructor in his 20th season at Park City Mountain, who identifies as British West Indian, has also experienced racism while just doing his job. I sit on chairlifts and people talk about me as if I'm not there. It's bizarre. So if I'm snowboarding on the mountain, and I'm getting on chairs, or I'm in lift lines, I hear people making comments, or they nudge each other and point to me and say things. Also, when I ride into the bottom of lifts, my face is covered up, I've got goggles on, and I lift them up, I can see people visibly taken aback, that, oh, you can actually turn, wow. And it makes me feel, when I am on the mountain, that I have to be better because it's not expected of me. He recalls one particularly challenging incident as an instructor. We had a guy and his son went to the private lesson office and said, look, I'd like to actually have a decent instructor who knows what they're doing and who's experienced. And they said, fine, no problem, we'll give you Martin. So he walks out to post, comes up to the supervisor and says, I'm looking for someone called Martin. And the supervisor turns and calls me, I turn around and I can see his face drop. So I walk towards him with my hand out to shake his hand. He doesn't shake my hand. He just turns his shoulder to me, turns to my supervisor and says, is this some kind of joke? And the supervisor assured him and said, no, this is the person who trains the instructors here. You'll have a good lesson. So the guy then turns to me and says, all right then, but I don't want a lesson from you. Just show us around. And I just carried on. Fast forward an hour and it's a full-blown lesson. We get to the bottom at the end of it and we're there with the supervisor and he says, that's the best lesson of any kind I've ever had. And he holds out a $100 bill and says, I need to book you for tomorrow. And I just looked at him and said, I'm not available. And I walked away and left him standing there with his money. <laughs> it's the only time I've turned down a tip. <laughs> Interestingly, Racist incidents such as these were much less common when Martin was growing up in the UK. I went to an Irish Catholic school. In every year or intake or grade, as you call them here, we had about 90 people. And in those 90, usually there were about four, of which I was one, that were neither Irish nor white. I was in, definitely in the minority there, but never meant to feel like it. It was like that all the time I was growing up. It wasn't my race, my color was never an issue. I think I had two incidents in my entire first 40 years of life in the UK. Um, and that changed when I came to the US. Martin wasn't raised near ski fields and had to get creative learning to ski. So when I started skiing, I went on a dry slope in the UK in a place called Hillingdon. And this is basically nylon bristles on a diamond lattice metal framework 
on a steep hill. Because of the friction involved with the nylon against the base, it has to be much, much steeper than it would be on snow. So a beginner slope on a dry slope is the somewhere between the pitch of a blue and a green before you even start. And if you fall, you get friction burns, you get bruised, and if you put a finger out, you're gonna snap that as well. <laughs> Growing up as a competitive skateboarder, Martin had a natural transition to snowboarding and he became a pioneer for the sport in the UK and helped shape the British Association of Snow Sport Instructors qualification. So after I discovered I had a love for skiing, um, I actually went on a holiday to Les Arcs in France and I saw a video, very early video called Apocalypse Snow that was a mix of the two things I really loved, skateboarding and skiing. And from that, I had a yearning to try snowboarding. I did manage to try it. Um, decided I want to do a lot more. So I got a job with a British ski tour operator running ski holidays. But to be employed by them, I had to go back to skiing because they weren't just employing snowboarders. This was um, 1987. So after the first season, they realized that there was definitely a market for it. And I ran the first ever British snowboard camp in 1988. And some of the pioneers of the sport in the UK were on that camp. Eventually, Martin transferred to the U.S., where he became both a flight attendant and snowboard instructor. Transitioning from the U.K. to Park City was a bit of a culture shock. I had spent time in the States um, on odd visits. I was a competitive skateboarder, so I'd come across and do the odd race here and there in California or on the East Coast. But I hadn't been to the Rockies before, and some of the attitudes were quite alien to me um, and one of the first things I noticed because I had looked at a census report before I came and I was looking at the breakdown of, of races and I kept looking further and further and further down the list further down the list for Utah got right down to the end and it had 0.9% Asian 1% Native American and it had 0.5% African American. So that's basically me and the Utah Jazz. That was about it. So in a larger sense, the it was a little strange joining the community because it was almost like I didn't belong anywhere because I was clearly a foreigner since I opened my mouth. And that was shocking people as well because they would look at me and make assumptions and then I start to speak and they wouldn't even hear the first sentence because they were busy looking at me with their eyes wide open going, what? is he saying? <laughs> and I did feel a bit like a fish out of water. In the locker room, there was a lot of the us and them thing when it came to snowboarders that I hadn't experienced in Europe. So that was my first culture shock. Instructors making jokes like, oh, what's the difference between a snowboard instructor and a beginner? About two days. It was that kind of joke was going around the locker room. And there you have a great example of how clicky our sport and our industry can be. Even if you are an expert at your craft, you are still jumping through hoops to prove you belong. And sure, it's easy to blow off moments like these as just jokes. And full disclosure, over my 44 years of skiing, I have participated in jokes about less experienced skiers or snowboarders. And I have been on the other side of them as well, being a New Yorker, a suit, from corporate or that I ski in jeans. But in all seriousness, it's hard to talk about being inclusive if our sport is full of lingo and language, nuance and humor that is all about defining who really belongs in the mountain community. Amazingly, many people make it through this gauntlet to the other side and become passionate about our sport. But what about the countless other people that just walk away? Claudia Chacon is an area manager for retail rental at Northstar. Fortunately, Claudia, like everyone on this podcast, made it through the other side. Claudia migrated to the United States from Mexico with her family when she was an infant. I was always sort of brought up to say, if anybody asks, you're you're from LA, right? Like, don't don't worry about sharing that you came from Mexico. It wasn't until later in life that it became a little easier to swallow and openly talk about or even accept what I am. 
to some extent. Um, I've always very much so distanced myself from saying I'm Mexican, from saying I'm Hispanic or I'm from Mexico. I've always prided myself in saying that I am from LA or I'm a Cali girl, right? And it's something that now I'm a bit prouder to say that I am Hispanic. Claudia had developed a lifelong ambition to move to Tahoe from LA. I got introduced to the outdoors by um, an aunt of mine. Um, She lived in Northern California, still currently does. And we ventured out to Tahoe only twice in my entire lifetime when I was a child prior to moving to Tahoe. And once we came out here and got the taste of what South Lake Tahoe had to offer and kind of venturing into the Sierras, I felt like this is where I wanted to be, embracing the activities that nature provides and kind of that mental resilience that comes with it. After a career spanning veterinary medicine, big box retailers, and food and beverage, Claudia was ready to manifest her lifelong ambition to move to Tahoe. Claudia recalls the interview process for her role at North Star. I spoke very differently than um, the Tahoe ski bomb, ski industry uh, lingo, if you will. I didn't have the bro in me, if if, if you want to put it that way. (laughs) So there was a lot of jargon there during my interviews that I didn't quite understand. Um, I was okay with it. It was more so like, okay, I'm just going to like urban dictionary this after my interview and see what that means. As her interview process progressed, Claudia began to wonder if it was hindering her. As I was passed on, yes, I was being told that it was because I have experience and I probably would be able to uh, fit in a better location with more challenge. But in the back of my mind, I it was more, I don't know that that's true. Maybe I just didn't present myself in you know the ski industry vibe. I don't know that I really presented myself in the kind of person that they want to have. So to me, it was like, oh my God, I, I what am I doing? <laughs> I'm a Mexican applying to work at a ski resort. I, what do I need to change about how I'm presenting myself? Ultimately, Claudia didn't change how she presented herself. She won the role and has since thrived at North Star. Learning she had secured the position was a day she won't soon forget. One of the most emotional, um, most excited experiences that I'd had. And I, to this day, I think I still have the voicemail saved on my phone for that role. And yet... Even buoyed by confidence after landing the role through a rigorous interview process, Claudia was left wondering, can I fit in? Can I make this work? I remember my very first day working for North Star, and it was my first resort kickoff. It was all of the mountain leaders for the resort get together and talk about strategies. I'm walking in, I have my name tag, and... I have an assigned location to sit and I'm walking into this room and it was very bright. I I don't think I saw anybody that looked like me that I can gravitate to or, you know, I'm I'm more so just thinking about like, it's not so much about where am I going to sit? It's more so like, what am I doing here? Like, holy cow, (laughs) like I'm here. Now what? (laughs) So it was, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but it was back to that little kid that came to Lake Tahoe and it looked like a very big fantasy world that was hard to achieve. So now you're walking into this room, you feel like you've conquered it, but then I started feeling small again because I I just felt, again, like nobody, nobody looks like me. This is a critical part of why diversity is so important. Because no matter how good of a job we do at building the inclusivity of our culture, it is incredibly challenging for anyone to always be the only at work. And for those of us who have not experienced it, we can often be dismissive or callous to the potential impact. Uluzen Mama, who goes by Zen, is the general manager of Seven's Restaurant in Peak 7 at Breckenridge. Zen was born in the Philippines and knows very well what it's like to be an only in many contexts in our company. I'm gay, I'm Asian, I'm Islam, and 
I'm out here. Zen also knows well that feeling that Claudia experienced walking into the room for the first time. I'm not into any outdoor, even growing up. When I decided to come here, my goal is to just try out the ski area, the snow, you know, snow town. I've never really, I've seen snow, but I've never really lived in a, in a town or in a, in a place where snow is, is a thing. So I gave it a shot and then, yeah, I end up being here and yeah, there's a lot of fun memories, but at first it was, it was not easy because considering that I'm not outdoor, I thought I would be just be working in a restaurant the way it is, but no, I put my jackets on. I don't even have a winter jacket, so I was layering five normal jackets. We take the chairlift and they put me in Overlook, which is one of the, you know, I mean, the highest restaurant we have here. And the snow was taller than me. And the first thing I have to do is shovel and snowblow. So because of that in my head is I did not sign up for this job. And literally my first day of meeting my team, it was, I will say the word scary because I've always worked with different nationalities, different cultures, different people, different color, different religion. And I remember my first day, we were invited by the manager to do a meetup. I was the last person who walked in and all I saw was all white guys, all long hair guys, and all dudes. And they're very casual. And to be exact, I am really kind of like a semi-formal type of person because that's my personality. And my expectation, to be honest, went down. It was, to be honest, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> I was really quiet. And usually I am loud. I am very funny. I, I believe English is not my first language. So sometimes I describe things differently the way other people does. So they were just going to start laughing. But that day I was just like a zipper mouth kind of thing. As yeah, all since like great meeting you guys, but I was ready to go back to San Antonio. But to be honest, like the first week was great and it was a quick transition from day two of not liking it to day five of like, yeah, I can see myself here at least for the six months. Zen left the Philippines when he was 17 and set out on a career in hospitality, first in the Middle East, before making his way to San Antonio, Texas and eventually Breckenridge. Zen has always felt that he has needed to prove himself more than other candidates or colleagues to be recognized for the impacts he can have. The only negative I, I will say is being gay and being, you know, Asian, I don't think you get the first choice. Or I mean, they consider you as a first candidate. In general, in United States, there is always a question, can he do it? Can he perform it? But what they don't know is we're more capable of doing it. Like for me personally, I'm very detailed person, very detailed oriented. I don't care if I don't sleep, you know what I mean, until I finish it. So the work ethic is there and I don't settle for less. Growing my career here in United States, it was it was the toughest. Like I really have to physically prove it to show them that I can do it and then end up, you know, I mean, I end up being recognized and being the leader or being the team lead of the project or kind of like the head of the project because now that they physically see it, they can trust you basically. Zen is sharing an example of unconscious bias. We all hold unconscious beliefs about various groups of people that drive bias in our actions and behaviors. Accepting that is true and confronting our own implicit bias is the first step we can take in dismantling it. At Breckenridge, Zen has found that having leaders that believe in him has made all the difference. Here in Breckenridge, they really helped me. I started as a seasonal supervisor and within a month, I got the assistant manager. And after a year, I got the general manager. It was a quick transition, but I, I was really lucky enough to have leaders such as the leaders here in my department in food and beverage and at the resort that able, able to push us 
to our, you know, mean out of our comfort zone and keep growing. And this season, Zen has set a new goal for himself to learn to ski and ride. It is a really cool fact that I've never ski and snowboard yet, but this year it it will be my my biggest uh, personal goal as everyone is dying to see me skiing down and riding down. But I always have an excuse that I don't have the right outfit yet, the right clothing, knowing that I have advantages of purchasing it. But I use that as an excuse, but no, it, it, it will be my biggest uh, achievement for this season is to able to put a ski, put a ski boots and ride down on a mountain. Because again, I have all the perks, but I, I don't know. The thing that keeps me here in Breckenridge, just to be honest, is my happiness. With the team I have, with the people around me, the restaurants I work, people are like, what are you doing in Breckenridge? Like... Are you really serious that you're, you know, you've never put a ski or even ride down, even a very short, even in a small park? No, I've never done it yet, but it will be my biggest goal for this season. While we certainly spend much time identifying and trying to change moments where people feel excluded, it's also important to call out how powerful it can be when people are made to feel included. And moments like the one Zen describes in Breckenridge are what inspires me about what's possible. That's how you grow the sport. Nikita Smalls is a black American from Charleston, South Carolina. She is a senior specialist in the accounting team based in Broomfield. Like Zen, Nikita didn't ski before joining Vail Resorts. I joined Vail and my first week we had our finance ski day. So that's when I got my opportunity to ski. Everybody was super welcome and excited that I was wanting to learn. I was terrified because I'm like, oh my God, I could break my arm. I could get seriously hurt. It took me two and a half hours to get down school marm. And the person that I was skiing with, she was just like, just follow me. It's going to be okay. Like she kept me calm. I tried to follow her lines. It took us two and a half hours and we missed the bus to go to our actual conference. And she thought it was hilarious. I had coworkers come pick me up. They thought it was hilarious, but it didn't discourage me from, from going to a ski school lesson the next weekend. And I've been skiing ever since. I've tried to take every class I could. And I would say that it's probably like seven or eight minutes now down school marm for me. <laughs> for Nikita, it wasn't the outdoor industry or the opportunity to live in a mountain town that led her to Vail Resorts. It was her drive and ambition to succeed within corporate America. To follow her career dreams, she has moved to many locations, including Orlando and San Francisco, before eventually landing in Colorado. Living on both sides of the coast, coming from Virginia Beach, which is super diverse, I didn't realize that Denver wasn't as diverse. Like we have a lot of free thinkers here, it, I've always seen it as a hippie town, you know? So when I first got here, it was actually really shocking to me to see the lack of diversity. Even the first workplace I worked in, I was one of the only front of house African-Americans there besides our doormen or our drivers or our restaurant people. I was one of first of like black women actually in a managerial role at the front office. And, and that was something that was very shocking to me. It's worth a pause here to highlight something Nikita mentions. People of color who consider joining our company will not only be looking at how inclusive our company is, but how diverse and inclusive our communities are. The communities they will be living in. And unfortunately our mountain communities and the front range in Colorado are not very diverse, which reinforces the importance of taking a truly holistic view to our inclusivity efforts. For Nikita, a lack of diversity wasn't going to prevent her from making the next move. For her next career opportunity, she focused on finding a company that aligned to who she was. That meant she focused her search not on what it didn't offer her, but rather on what it did especially as it related to leadership and culture. With guidance from a mentor that had already taken the same path, Nikita accepted the position at Broomfield and was able to move forward with eyes open. Coming to Vail, 
I I really like wanted to make sure that my personal boxes were checked on learning, growing, work-life balance, pay, community service, and community outreach. The person who referred me is Asian and she told me you're gonna be by yourself. But she also reminded me that there's so many more people my age that I can relate to and I can have friends and not feel like I'm the youngest person in the room. So that was something I was like, okay. And I had a game plan coming in where to find those opportunities, where I wanted to go and whom to align myself with. While Nikita has had an overall positive experience, there are still unexpected moments and microaggressions that shape her daily work life. I would say the only thing where coming into Vail, like coming into the corporate office, where I ever really felt like, okay, like it matters who I am is, is floor levels on the elevator. People think that they know by looking at someone what floor that they they work on. And there's been so many occasions where, you know, I get on the elevator and it's automatically assumed that I work at the call center because that's our most diverse department. That was something that was pretty eye-opening, but it didn't hurt me because I'd been through so much worse and because of the spirit of the times. And living in Colorado, when I come to the office, I made it through the doors. Nobody tried to stop me and ask me like, who I am and why I'm here. And so I always felt comfortable going into the office. Like people aren't gonna, you know, tell me I don't belong there or, you know, feel out of place because of my race. Um, the only occasion is that darn elevator, but I found ways to just speak first, press the button first, you know, show them differently. And, and it's made a difference. Because of her experiences, Nikita feels a responsibility to ensure others are made welcome, especially those that might be feeling like they don't fit into our environment. Coming down to the lobby, there's always so many different interviews and people waiting for interviews. And you see people, you can tell that they're looking around, they're looking at everyone and seeing how they would fit in. And I see other people there that are in full suits, super dressed up, high heels, and everyone around them, everyone walking in and out of the buildings in jeans, just a, a, a sweater or a hoodie. They're just like, oh my God, I made the wrong decision. You know, I, I'm in the suit. And I always just, you know, hey, how's it going? Or look really nice and, and just make them feel more welcome. Like it's okay that you're dressed differently. You can wear whatever you want. And hey, why not look your best when you're in an interview? And that deliberate effort to provide a safe, welcoming space has carried into how Nikita spends her time outside of work. I feel like everybody assumes that people who ride bike races are, they look like Lance Armstrong, you know? And so I recently joined Black Girls Do Bike Denver, and it's a group that provides support and a safe space for women and girls of color whom have a shared interest in cycling and providing representation and showing everyone we're out here and we do bike. And so being a part of those groups where there's more people that are like me, but then also creating that outreach for people who are interested but don't feel like they belong. I'm staying like my authentic self. I'm also aligning myself with people who also want to share that same message. Like you can do this. It does not matter. Standing up for underrepresented people and ensuring that voices are heard and that the examples are out there. The employees who shared their stories today have excelled because of their diversity of experiences rather than in spite of them. And all of them have thoughts and feedback to improve our company and our industry. And it starts with listening and learning. When I first started, I didn't even feel like the issues that I was having were taken particularly seriously because nobody understood or they thought I was exaggerating. But in the last few years, I have felt more encouraged by the response I've had from management. I would say in the last 12 months in particular. Prior to that, I think every single year we've had our opening meetings pre-season to get you ready for the season. I've always, always put my hand up and I can see some of the uh, senior staff put their hands over their eyes like, here we go again. 
and ensuring that we provide safe and supportive spaces for dialogue. I think that we have people in our company that are least likely or discouraged to speak up because they're worried about the language barrier. It would be nice to feel like there was a corporate minority group where everybody can get together and think tank and share experiences amongst themselves. And pursuing opportunities to reduce barriers to entry, like the EDGE Outdoor Initiative that Annette has recently launched to provide scholarships to women of color to learn to ski or ride. This is an initiative to attempt to bring diversity to the slopes, also to bestow equity to women of color and promote the normalization of our black and brown bodies on the hill. And ensuring we create opportunities to represent diversity in our sport externally and internally. There was no one of color on anything. There was no representation at all. And I'd even had clients who'd noticed that. I had a group of young Asian guys who were from Silicon Valley, lots of money, happy to spend it. They had a lesson with me and they actually said to me, you know, we don't know if we are going to come back to Utah because there isn't anyone here that looks like us. There's nothing in your marketing that looks like us. And, you know, we'll probably just stay in California. So people do notice. And leveraging opportunities for us to acknowledge and celebrate more diverse cultural key moments that shape the experiences of our employees and our guests, like pride. During the ski pride, uh, I think like it, it, it is the last day of the week where they have the biggest <laughs> gay flag I've ever seen. And they will ski it down from, you know, I mean, the peak of the mountain going down to the base. So it was really fun. As, you know, I mean, see like other people from town or even at the base see that, you know, I mean, gay flag and that uh, the uh, rainbow flag rise despite of whatever is happening in this world. <laughs> like upright. After the day is over with, you know, I connect with my coworkers and I go to the bar, go to these spaces. You know, there's live music going sometimes, but it's, it's music that I cannot identify with. It's a culture that I cannot identify with. So I'm not really attracted to it. So, so and, and as a result, you can't really retain me in those spaces for very long. So um, something that can make it more inclusive is adding a, a, a little bit more diverse music palette in those spaces. And it would help, you know? And cultivating opportunities to grow diverse representation within our leadership group. That's why it's so important to have these different diverse discussions and opinions at the leadership level, because you need a different way to think and a different way to see things. If you don't have diversity and inclusion at the board and leadership level, you run the risk of looking like you do more lip service than community service. And if we provide the right development and opportunities, we will see the reward. I think there's only one Hispanic grade 28 in our company, and I want to be able to change that. I'd like to be the second. <laughs> I, I want to be able to continue to grow. I want to continue to climb the ladder, um, but I want to be able to do it as me. I, I don't want to do it as the ski bro. I, I want it to be just me. Because that's the ultimate goal, that everyone that comes to work at our company has an opportunity to thrive. The greatest impact could really be the fact that when we have these new diverse employees or potential employees want to come work for Vail Resorts, is that they see someone similar to themselves or someone they can relate to within the process, within the leadership that they can go, okay, this is, I feel comfortable here. I want to thank Annette, Court, Martin, Claudia, Zen, and Nikita for their willingness to share their personal experiences in such a vulnerable way so that we all have the opportunity to listen and learn. I also want to acknowledge that we have many other guests and employees of color who have many other stories and challenges they have faced within our company and our resorts. And there is no doubt we still have a long way to go on this journey. But just because we have a long way to go and much room for improvement should not deter us from making progress every day and celebrating that progress. We were all born into a biased system about race we can't change that. 
but we can change how we show up going forward, how we take down the barriers that are out there, not only the barriers that people of color face, but everyone's barriers that prevent our company and our sport from being truly inclusive because we are part of the problem. If you have any comments or feedback on this episode of Epic by Nature, you can email us at podcast at Thanks for listening.